From bloated and tired to free and inspired, welcome to Free and Inspired Radio with Philip Watkins, your weekly dose of everything digestion and mental health related. We hope you enjoy this episode. Here is your host, Philip Watkins. Yes, yes. Hi there. Welcome to another episode of Free and Inspired Radio. I'm your host, a naturopathic practitioner, Philip Watkins, and I'm grateful to have you with us today. If you're new to the show, well, the title says it all. It's all about feeling free and inspired and exploring the many different avenues you can take to get there, whether it's deep dives on digestion and mental health solutions or guests who offer their own stories and answers. I hope I can be the type of guide you can rely on to unlock the agency you have to reach your own mental and physical competency. Let's get started with what's coming up on today's episode. Coming up on this week's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Episode 19 of Free and Inspire Radio. Philip Watkins here. How you doing? I hope you have had a fantastic week coming into the end of March, almost Easter time. I believe the Easter eggs were out just post-Christmas, but that doesn't matter, does it? Because we're here to talk about free and inspired stuff. And in this episode, I'm going to introduce you to cortisol, the hormone that allows your body to deal with stress, but may also slow down your digestive system, metabolism, and suppress your immune system at the same time. So a regular statement in the clinic is I think stress affects my hormones and it's so true but not in the way that many people may think. It's not just your sex hormones like estrogen, progesterone and testosterone that are causing reactions in your body but other hormones such as insulin and the hormone that we're going to be talking about today, cortisol. In this episode, we're going to be looking at how cortisol affects the body. We'll also look at the best natural way to harness cortisol so that it doesn't harness you, which you may see a common theme amongst this episode as to the balance involved and the delicate balance here. Cortisol is a good friend to all, but an enemy to some. Now, somewhat of a strange statement, so let me explain Like all the other hormones in the endocrine system, cortisol affects multiple sites within the body, such as the nervous, immune, digestive, respiratory, reproductive systems, often for reasons embedded within your survival. Now, as we'll see in this episode, it does more than just manage your stress response. It covers your immune function, inflammatory response, and also regulates your metabolism. Most of the time, its effects on these systems allow you to transcend an incoming threat and live to see another day. Unfortunately, in the modern day, though, the body can have a difficulty assessing when a stressor is dissipated and when it's a direct threat to your life, such as an email from Steve in marketing. Apologies to Steve in marketing. I don't actually know you. I made you up. But if someone doesn't like you and you send them an email, maybe your body is perceiving it as a threat to their life. It's times like this when cortisol remains elevated for too long when its effects can make you feel like it's working against you. For example, chemicals called catecholamines, 
increase your heart and respiratory rate to help you physically respond to a stressful situation. Suppose the levels of these catecholamines stay high for a sustained period. In that case, the elevated heart and respiratory rate caused by the catecholamines erode the cardiovascular system, eventually increasing your risk of stroke and cardiovascular illness. It's vital to see cortisol positively. I'm just going to repeat that. It's vital to see cortisol positively. And you're going to hear me say that a few times over the course of this episode. Most of the time, it allows your body and brain to align for a common goal, to defend you from everything the big wide world can throw your way. So first, let's explore cortisol's beneficial role for us in the, in the stress response. The brain, central nervous system and endocrine system interact when priming you to react to stress faultlessly and we it's so good that we barely even know that it's happening now one of the more compelling aspects of the cascade of physiology that follows stress is that the amygdala the part of the brain that processes fear arousal and other emotional stimuli is the primary site to determine whether something is stressful or not so before cortisol has even had a chance to affect your body the amygdala and your perception of a situation determines whether or not it's going to turn on its reaction to stress. Furthermore, research suggests that how your amygdala develops as a child influences how you respond to stress throughout your life, which is super interesting. Conditions such as post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury, so big ups to all my rugby crew, can contribute to a change in the amygdala leading to a dysfunctional downstream response to stress. It's only when the amygdala says so that the hypothalamus gets the message to trigger a broader physiological reaction. Enter here the sympathetic nervous system, which you may or may not have heard of. Once the hypothalamus is activated, so an area of the brain is activated called the hypothalamus, the SNS or sympathetic nervous system stimulates the mobilization of different energy sources, ensuring the body is up to the challenge of present or upcoming threats. The sympathetic nervous system triggers the catecholamines we mentioned earlier, responsible for increasing your heart and respiratory response, with norepinephrine or adrenaline being an example of one of the catecholamines released from the adrenal glands. Now, as the threat continues, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal cortical axis is activated, or HPA axis you may be more familiar with, releasing cortisol from the adrenal glands, allowing the body to stay alert. Now, in a more acute setting, cortisol sets off a metabolic process that carries on the release of energy, ready to, ready to be used to continue the response. Look at me having a cheeky glass of water mid through an episode i'm not even going to edit it so thank you for that cortisol sustains our response to stress by having a heavy influence on our metabolism in short-term acute stress glucose is released into the blood after the catecholamine starts signaling the process of converting stored glycogen the form your body stores glucose into glucose this conversion is mainly so that the energy-intensive brain can have uninhibited access to glucose whenever necessary. So just to summarize a little bit there, catecholamines or adrenaline or epinephrine, they're the very, very short-term acute stress response. And it's not until the body perceives that the threat is continuing, i.e. 
the tiger sees you and starts chasing you instead of walking past you in a more prehistoric sense, it's not until the body perceives the threat to be continuing that cortisol actually kicks in. And this is you know, quite an important thing to uh, outline here. So if the stress continues, cortisol then sustains this glucose production by initiating processes in the liver, muscle, fat tissue, and pancreas. So once again, you can see how it's covering a lot of systems there. Whilst the adrenaline response kicks off the glucose manufacturing process, as we discussed, cortisol sustains it, and it does this in two ways. The first is that it decreases glycogen synthesis, so it decreases glucose storage and keeps it in the bloodstream, or it, it then uh, affects the operation of storing glucose in the muscle and fat tissue as well. So after all, why are you going to deposit money in the bank when you need to buy something immediately? And this is exactly why the body stops the storage of glucose in the muscle and fat there. So it also does this via influencing pancreatic cells that affect the actions of two hormones, glucagon and insulin. So this is where in some cases people can have blood sugar problems actually because of cortisol, which is interesting. In the liver, cortisol also upregulates a process called gluconeogenesis. This process involves taking amino acids from protein and other non-carbohydrate sources and turning them into glucose. Whilst this mainly happens in the liver, it's lesser known that the kidneys and intestines are contributory organs in this process as well. Exposing the body to the effects of cortisol over a longer term leaves you at risk of developing stress-induced metabolic disorders such as metabolic syndrome. So one of the things I'm hoping you're getting from this episode is that cortisol's action in the body allows a coordinated and sustained response to stress. Hormones are either increased or decreased, multiple organs are activated, and having an endless supply of glucose becomes a high priority. When my patients think of stress, the connection between the way stress feels in the body and the dysfunction in the metabolism isn't always that straightforward. We often make the connection between stress being an excitatory or sustaining factor still as cortisol's effect on the body becomes more apparent through this episode. Maybe it's easier to see things, how things can go wrong when cortisol isn't allowed to decrease. And this is where we're going with this. From as early as 2003, studies have been looking at stress-induced causes of type 2 diabetes with elevated cortisol levels playing a central role. This connection seems to have developed into building relationships between the stress response and metabolic syndrome in the modern day, a condition that affects up to 25% of the world's population. So beyond type 2 diabetes, which sometimes can be an extension of metabolic syndrome, already we know that metabolic syndrome is a condition that affects almost a quarter of the world's population. Now, if you're new to metabolic syndrome, it presents with three out of the following five markers that appear in a blood test. Elevating fast, elevated fasting glucose, elevated triglyceride levels, low high-density cholesterol or good cholesterol, high blood pressure or hypertension, and high waist circumference and often as it relates to BMI and look I'm not a massive fan of BMI so you know we'll we'll leave that there a common trend in the clinic is patients of both genders presenting with these markers at younger intervals and it's a little kind of in scary just for men who are, who I'm seeing mid 30s mid to late 30s presenting with definitely three to four out of five of those characteristics. So brothers, uh, 
young fathers, husbands, friends, keep an eye on your men in this case. Still a clearer common denominator amongst all of these men that I'm seeing, especially with these markers and sorry to single out the gender, is that the, is especially in financial centres such as Hong Kong, New York and London, is a higher level, a higher sustained level of stress, which is suggestive that, hey, cortisol might be part of this. But wait, there's more just like your favorite advert, we've linked metabolic syndrome and cortisol. So it's not just something that we see in the clinic. Another component makes more of a makes this more of a dynamic triad. And it's not just metabolic syndrome and cortisol. The other third component is obesity. Now, once again, as this comes together, it's more evident that the relationship between prolonged high cortisol from stress, obesity, and metabolic syndrome is kind of a chicken and egg scenario. You're not really sure which one kicks off the other. But as research unfolds, one of the more interesting ideas around how cortisol influences our metabolisms and obesity, obesity, especially central obesity, is its own metabolism specifically an enzyme that activates or inactivates cortisol, 11-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase type 1. So let's just call it 11-BHSD1. How does that sound? Whilst more clarity on exactly how this enzyme plays a role, we know that the overexpression of this enzyme leads to higher levels of diabetes type 2, so that's a progression of metabolic syndrome, and also visceral fat, so higher levels of this enzyme 11 beta hsd1 causes more visceral fat and that's the type of fat that's kind of pretty dangerous it covers your organs and you know, it can cause a lot of problems so this enzyme-based connection clears the way to a better understanding of why people with higher cortisol levels have higher levels of central obesity 11 beta hsd1 simply keeps the cortisol active and it, uh, amplifying these metabolic changes that we've touched on above it seems scientists feel that this is just as important with new drugs looking to inhibit the action of this enzyme being researched to influence metabolic syndrome and obesity. So they're actually looking at 11-beta-HSD1 inhibitors. And the research is somewhat interesting. It's mainly in mice. And their research results from memory here, right, uh, putting all this together, excuse me, is pretty mixed. So we'll have to wait and see. Um, but on that, the metabolism of cortisol also affects your deeper metabolism of carbohydrates and fats. So that's actually really important because oftentimes the liver is a central part of both of those things. Now, if you're new to the liver, you can check out episode 16, I think, of Free and Inspire Radio where I go through the liver. And maybe that's a way of understanding how uh, deeper how the cortisol can be effective here. This isn't all cortisol does in your body. It's a little bit. It also has a very significant effect on your immune system. And after the break, we will explore the connection between cortisol and digestion. And the one thing that you can do that's better than anything at all at managing the natural cortisol release in your body. This is Free and Inspire Radio. We're talking all things cortisol on episode 19. We will be back after the break. Time to take a break. Are you enjoying this episode of Free and Inspired Radio? There's no better time to take back your personal health sovereignty. 
If you want to connect with more free and inspired episodes, simply subscribe to your favorite podcast platform or visit the website at www.philipwatkins.health for more information. Let's get back to the show. Welcome, welcome back to episode 19 of Free and Inspired Radio. I hope you're enjoying this episode so far. This week, we're looking at the famed stress hormone cortisol and how it benefits this in some ways and causes issues in others. And before the break, we've looked at the considerable effect that cortisol can have on your metabolism. Let's start the show's final section with a look on how cortisol affects your immune system. Amongst other things, we're also going to touch on the digestion as well. Most of my patients are familiar with glucocorticoid drugs like cortisone and its use as an anti-inflammatory drug. But if you're not, then commonly these cortisone-like drugs are used to assist people living with allergies, autoimmunity, and chronic inflammatory conditions. One of the ways that people, they can help people manage their inflammation is actually by limiting the access immune cells can have to inflammatory sites. For those experiencing either an acute or more long-standing inflammatory event, the efficacy of glucocorticoid drugs can be life-changing. And one of the things I really hope to offer over the course of these different episodes is that sometimes when it comes to pharmacy, look, they can really change your life. And people's reluctance sometimes to go into pharmaceutical interventions can be such that in a sense they may actually be somewhat stopping themselves from getting better and look I don't I, I don't want that to come across as accusatory um, you can do whatever you want in relation to your treatment but when I see well, I've seen people take things like cortisone for really heavy skin conditions or something like that and the relief that they get is just beyond measure so just a small monologue rant there. But look, what if you're not looking for immune suppression and that's, uh, that's where sometimes things can go wrong when it comes to the immune system. So the, the strength of immune suppression we get from cortisone as a drug can be somewhat mimicked by cortisol in the body, often in an unwanted fashion. Here we find another example of how cortisol can be a friend to most but an enemy in the wrong circumstances. Suppose you're living through an unprecedented global pandemic and looking to protect and nurture the effectiveness of your immune system as best as possible. Having elevated cortisol levels may not actually help. In fact, cortisol suppresses nearly all of your critical immune cells, making it difficult to mount a response when needed. This dampening of the immune system can hinder your ability to respond to an infection acutely, but may also reactivate previous viral infections such as herpes simplex. And if you know someone or are someone who suffers from cold sores, then simply ask them when do they get the most cold sores is often when they're under a lot of stress. Elevated cortisol can slow down your metabolism and immunity and divert energy from your digestive system. So just slightly moving forward here, I've touched on this before in other episodes, but it's vital to understand how stress can radiate symptoms into your body. And we've looked at the immune system and the metabolism so far. And cortisol is a central figure, especially if you suffer from irritable bowel syndrome as well. So digestion included. We've mentioned one of the beneficial roles that cortisol plays is to initiate a process that diverts energy in a way that frees up glucose for the brain. Once again, another place where this can work against us is within the immune system. 
To illustrate this, I've offered a strange, a strange uh, um, analogy or metaphor to patients to try and imagine uh, what it's like to eat, try eating a sandwich when someone's chasing you with a knife. When your body's in mortal danger, eating, appetite and digestion fall away quickly, down, fall quickly down the list of priorities. And that's sometimes, to be fair, is how people are going about their daily lives in a sense where they're eating at their desk or eating at a time where they're incredibly distracted and basically the body just feels like it, it can't, it, it's turned the digestion off. Um, so this change in priorities uh, better represents how elevated cortisol impairs digestive function by simply choosing to send the energy source elsewhere. The cortisol response and epinephrine dry up the saliva in your mouth, dilute the gastric juice, so think the hydrochloric acid in your stomach, and inhibit your pancreatic enzyme secretion. These components are part of the critical north-to-south journey your food takes through the body. So it's any wonder when they're all inhibited or diluted that if you're stressed while eating that your nutrients can't, can feel as if they're not getting to the right places. In conclusion, cortisol is a perfect example of when relying too much on a good thing ends up working against you. And as I put together these episodes every week, I'm grateful that I start to see common themes amongst them, even for myself. For example, one of the key things I hope you picked up in this episode is maintaining balance. Cortisol is a great way to respond to stress, but it needs to finish. It needs to end. There needs to be a rest. Now, the way cortisol and the catecholamines preceding its release in the body uh, often is seen as a terrible thing, but their presence has saved you from hurting yourself or worse more times than you can count. The negative narrative here can lead us to believe that we always have problems with cortisol and that the issues of elevated cortisol are always at the heart of our problems. After completing many cortisol exams over the years, I can tell you that this isn't as frequent as you think. The cortisol parameters over the day can fluctuate, affecting your sleep and insulin response, sure. But you rarely see someone, or at least I rarely see someone with ultra-high levels or ultra-low levels of cortisol across a whole day. And yes, just a morning reading in your blood is not necessarily very indicative of your functional cortisol level or the way your body's dealing with cortisol. A blood level in the morning can definitely show you whether or not you have a proper pathology behind cortisol, which is a vastly different measure. Addison's disease, Cushing's, they're proper pathological diseases. We're kind of more looking at how cortisol affects the quality of your day and affects the functional health, uh, if you want to put it that way. So a little bit different. If you read this article and want to get started on your cortisol levels because you think it might be something that's worth considering, then look for a practitioner who can help you. Try looking for a test that can measure your urinary cortisol metabolites to understand how your cortisol and cortisone levels are placed. Remember 11-beta-HSD-1? I hope you haven't forgotten. <laughs> but you can actually measure the effects of 11-beta-HSD-1 with certain uh, certain hormonal exams. The Dutch test is one of them. No, they're not a sponsor. And so, look, if you need help with that, philipwatkins.health, you can go and check that out. Getting to the core of why your cortisol levels are a problem can be explicitly helpful with, explicitly help, excuse me, with herbal medicine. But I did promise the one natural 
thing that you can do to help with your cortisol and meditation practice will prove to be better than any pill or potion as a long-term fix. And look, how boring is that, hey? Doing some work. The easy road definitely lies within pills and potions for most, and to be fair, including myself in a lot of ways. So I'm not immune, but in this case, meditation is a big deal. So suppose you've caught another theme in this episode. You'll remember that the amygdala, your brain's emotional decision maker, decides on how your body reacts before the cortisol response is activated. Now, there's actually an evidence base to how meditation can help specifically with this amygdala activation. One study trained a small group of people in a Buddhist form of meditation, which involved uh, acceptance and compassion, and measured amygdala activity. Over time, the meditation group saw neuroplastic changes in the amygdala structure, which allowed for better processing of negative stimuli than the control group. The key thing that I picked up from this study is that the structural changes they saw in the amygdala allowed for clear improvements in stress reduction in a non-meditative state. So let me repeat that. The key thing from this study is that the structural changes that they saw in the amygdala from meditation allowed for clearer improvements in stress reduction in a non-meditative state, thus then leading to lower levels of cortisol. So you don't need a pill or a potion. You can meditate. Now, researchers in the US have actually built on these studies using functional MRIs, measuring changes in amygdala activity, and have concluded that eight weeks is the best length of time to see a change for the better. So there you have it. Cortisol, a friend to all, but an enemy to some. We now know that the ferociousness of cortisol's action in the body can actually be managed via changing the part of the brain that deems its presence to be appropriate an appropriate reaction in the first place. And if you ask me, this, is, this particular way of doing things is a real example of treating the cause of, it, of the problem in its purest form, which I feel that a lot of people say they do, but may not necessarily do. Now, that's also my own opinion. There you have it, cortisol, an introduction. I, I have so many times where I feel as if people know that when I say cortisol and its effects, they know what I'm talking about and more often than not, they go, hey, Phil, can you tell me what cortisol is? And here we are. <laughs> so I hope you found that um, you've learned a little more around cortisol, but also that it's not necessarily cortisol that's a problem and it may actually be the part of your brain that perceives whether it's necessary. Before we finish this long episode of Free and Inspired Radio, these episodes seem to be getting longer. I hope you're still with us. If you would love to hear more from me and get the word on new episodes or podcast episodes, um, sorry, an article, excuse me, uh, jump over to the website, philipwatkins.health and join our community via the newsletter on the homepage or any of the pages. Uh, your reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify help me to get the word on the street. And if you're listening to this on YouTube, please throw the video a like and subscribe to see when each new podcast is uploaded. As I said, each of these episodes seem to be getting a little longer, I think. It's because my preparation is getting a little more intense. So there was about 30 different journals for this particular episode. So it's getting a little more. If you feel like they're getting a little too long, make a comment, throw me an email, 
and we uh, I can take this on because this episode and all of the episodes of Free and Inspire Radio are all about you. So if there's any feedback, anything you want to know more about, any questions, just get in touch with us at Free and Inspire Radio or through the website and we'll be happy to help. In the meantime, we'll be back with another episode next week. Please take care of yourself, take care of the people around you and I will speak to you next week. Oh my gosh, you made it to the end. This show is all about you, and we hope you finished this episode feeling one step closer to feeling free and inspired. We'll be back next week, but if you want to know more about Philip, please catch a digital flight to www.philipwatkins.health for further details about how we might be able to help. In the meantime, have a great morning, afternoon, or evening, and we'll see you for another episode next week.